everybody, and welcome to Explain It To Me Like I'm a 10-Year-Old. Today, I am very lucky to have Milton Reynolds with me. Milton is a DEI consultant who works with schools to help them become an anti-racist institution. He worked as the Commissioner for Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Commission in San Mateo for over 10 years. He was also a Senior Program Associate at Facing History and Ourselves for 16 years. Milton is a renowned scholar and thought leader that I'm so excited to interview today. Hi, Milton. How are you doing? Pretty good, Charlie. How about yourself? I'm doing good, and I'm so excited. So I want to start off the interview by educating our audience on the difference between colorblindness and anti-racism. You know, why is it so important? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's a great question. I think part of the challenge is that colorblindness assumes that if we tell ourselves a story that we don't see difference, then all of the historical meaning that's assigned to difference will no longer be relevant. And that people can just move on and the world will be fair and equitable. That's a nice idea, but it's pure fantasy. The reality is anti-racism in its truest form requires understanding that race is actually not real in a biological sense, but recognizing that it has very real implications for how people live their lives. In reality, we're all racialized, but we're racialized differently in service of creating a hierarchy that is assumed to be rooted in biological endowments rather than in social impositions. So basically, to move from being colorblind into anti-racist is really a process, and it's as much of an intellectual process of understanding as it is an affective. Let me put it this way. The intellectual shifts are more important than the affective shifts. The affective or emotional sort of processes will follow along. But the difference is is that sometimes because of the ways in which colorblindness is sort of a shaming sort of project. I mean, the, the investment in colorblindness is an investment in performing virtue rather than understanding the ways in which race functions as a set of ideas. The challenge is that because most of the energy is invested in brand management, like I'm a good person, I'm not a racist person, that that comes at the expense of understanding these issues. And more importantly, when we do get in more complex conversations, most people don't have the skills to hold not only the complexity, but the emotional weight of it, because they've been taught that it's fairly simple. It's like good people or bad people. It's just not that simple. So, so that's a significant shift, but it's an important shift. And I would say that's the shift that the society is trying to make right now. And we'll see if we're successful or not. Well, if we shouldn't think of it in that way, how should we think about racism and the role it plays today? The way I think about racism is it invites people into low effort thinking. That is to assume that, that if we look at the world, we assume that biology is destiny, meaning that race or gender or disability are the primary determinants of whether or not somebody is successful, rather than understanding that the degree to which somebody is successful has a lot to do with what kind of resources they have access to, how those resources have been cultivated and allocated or are denied over time. That if we don't move into a more complex understanding of the way race, race works, we basically begin to cannibalize our democracy. Some of the very things that we see happening now politically are rooted in an inability to transcend a sort of racist or essentialist understanding of the world. And so when I say racist, I'm not saying like, oh, racism 
racist, a racist person is a bad person. I'm talking about a person who sees another person and looks primarily at them through the lens of race or gender or disability or what have you, as though that's their primary defining feature, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. So I also know that a lot of your work is focused on the study of eugenics. Uh, can, you, can you tell us about the history of eugenics and why it is so relevant today? So eugenics is really a scientific movement that emerges in the late 1800s. And it's rooted in the belief that the nation state itself is a biological or racial community. And so eugenics becomes a broad and diffuse set of intellectual investments that basically are used to drive forward the notion that race is real and that it's critical from a national perspective to, to control. And so the importance of that is that if you understand this history, you can actually begin to look at how systems and structures impose these certain sets of ideas onto society and it gets translated through policies and practices. It's also really important to understand because most people's assumption about the history of eugenics is that it's something that's innately Nazi and Nazi German. In fact, it's a global movement, but the United States was really at the center of the movement for much of its, much of its duration. Um, and I would say that those, those ideas and that that movement has ongoing implications. So eugenics is not something of the past. It's actually very much something of the present. Much of it actually hides in plain sight. And many of the commitments towards what I will say, what eugenicists would refer to as human improvement, we can find those narratives very comfortably situated in notions about the genetic improvement of human beings, like making kids smarter or more okay, same sort of fantasies about human improvement, but it's fueled by a set of ideas that are ultimately problematic and frankly malignant. Do you think there's a risk that eugenics could become mainstream? Oh, I think it is very mainstream. I, I think eugenics was broadly accepted across the political spectrum back in its heyday. And I think what we see resurgent right now is a similar set of ideas. And it plays out a lot around sort of racial nationalism. So you hear these calls to nation and patriotism that are rooted in a very narrow vision of a nation. But we also see it in these many of these sort of scientific technologies that are assuming that we can um, objectively and effectively, quote unquote, improve the human race, right? And so I think eugenics is very real. It shows up in all kinds of other policies and practices, many of which shape who gets resources and who doesn't. So I would argue that in a society that invested so deeply in these ideas, we've never had a sustained reckoning of the nature that would be required to unseat these ideas and to unsettle them. And so what happens is that they become acceptable through rebranding and re-narration in such a way that we can no longer see them operating as eugenics. We see them as reality, when in fact, there's a lot more that's obscured than illuminated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you pointed out, eugenics are growing in, in popularity, but, but how do we fight? Like, how do we fight the movement? So I think we can fight the movement with knowledge. I mean, I think it's important to understand that eugenics, when put forth, was viewed as sort of a utopian vision of society. The problem is that the utopian vision of society was that it was rooted in a sort of 
white Anglo-Saxon Protestant sense of normativity. So what that meant that anybody who fell outside of that was seen as dysgenic or problematic for society. It also has components that were very much tied to gender and the surveillance of reproductive labor. So it's actually not a surprise that Roe v. Wade is now uh, up for question, you know, after nearly 50 years of precedent because of the shifting demographics. What most people don't understand is that eugenics had a pro-natalist or a pro-birth sort of element to it, as well as the sterilization element. So the sterilizing were for people who were thought to be unfit or dysgenic. So those would have been poor people, disabled people, immigrants, women, people of color, although some men were sterilized. So the pro-eugenic or the pro-natalist approach is really, we can see some of the legacies of them in beauty contests. But if we go back in history, we can see that we used to have fitter family contests in the same way you might enter a hog or a calf or a lamb at the fair and get them graded, that people would literally bring their families to the fair, get graded eugenically, and that you might even receive a eugenic medal if your family had multiple generations, was free of alcoholism, had several children, and most importantly, that folks would be white, heteronormative, Right, so it was a, it's a way of imposing a certain worldview on a society that's far more diverse. And so it's inherently exclusive. And in that sense, it's very dangerous because assuming that there's only one way to be fit or one way to show up is really problematic. And it, I think it stifles people's sense of possibility, but also their imagination. So, you know, in the 1920s and the 30s, when eugenics was like really popular and it was actually being, you know, carried out, what, what was really going on? Like, what, what were the type of things that were happening? So I think you have a, you have a number of things. It's, so it's important to know that what was happening in the 20s had been a longer buildup. So in the late 1800s, you get an influx of uh, migrants, many coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. You're dealing in the aftermath of, eman of emancipation. So you have a significant African-American population that's a skilled population that historically was held in bondage that is now able to compete on the labor market, although certainly not fairly because of the racist Jim Crow laws and things. You also had an industrial revolution that was underway. So that was actually really creating migration from all across um, the globe. And you had cities growing and burgeoning like quadrupling in size in a very short period of time. And as we've seen in the Bay Area with the recent sort of explosion of the sort of tech industry and all those sort of issues that are attendant to that, you had homelessness, you had a lot of people sort of struggling because not everybody benefits from the uplift. So you had all of these things sort of taking place and eugenicists were trying to impose a sense of society that was more controllable, more orderly and more predictable based on their worldview. And what that meant was sort of limiting immigration, trying to control people's reproductive freedoms. It meant in many cases, the brutal subjugation of, of African-Americans and other immigrant groups. Because again, these notions of fitness or worthiness were also tied to economic commitments. Who should be laboring and who should be benefiting from the labor? So there was a complex mix of things sort of taking place. The, the last one that, that was, happening. There was a rediscovery of, of Gregor Mendel's work with the peas, right? Smooth or wrinkled, I think it was green or yellow. Um, both of those traits that Gregor Mendel had discovered or researched, he didn't discover them, he researched them. They were 
controlled by a single gene allele, meaning that there was a single, you know, a single allele in the genes that was actually shaping that. The reality is that most traits are controlled by a variety of genes and they're complex. And they're also, genes also interact with the environment. So there were a number of things that made eugenics attractive. And I guess the last thing, because I think there is some logic to it. Most people were still living in a relatively agrarian society or certainly had some relationship to that. People knew how to grow their veggies. They had some familiarity with animal husbandry and raising sheep and cattle and things like that. So they thought you could do the same thing with people. Uh, and then if you were able to do that, you could create a perfect society. Uh, they were wrong. So that's that's the challenge. So switching gears a bit, uh, I'd love to learn more about your background and career. So can you take us through your background and how you got involved in this work? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my involvement in this work is rooted, I think, to a much deeper commitment that I think has been with me most of my life. And that is to live in a society that's fair and just. I think some of my desires to do that come from having to deal with witness and to experience injustice, right? Um, I think like most kids who grew up in the Bay Area, some of my initial ideas were to get a job that paid a lot of money and you know, and all that. But I, I very quickly became sort of disabused of the idea that making money was actually all that important. Like I've never seen a U-Haul headed skyward. So the idea that you spend your entire life accumulating things, none of which you can take with you, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. What, what I was interested is in dealing with fairness and seeing people treated well. And so my own career trajectory is complicated, right? I was a high school dropout. I was out of school by my junior in high school. I got kicked out because of some knucklehead choices I was making. Um, I went on to go to continuation school and then I, then I went on to college. I actually, when I showed up as a student, I did really well. I had lots of good offers to go to school. Um, I also tested really well. And so when I started going to college, I was interested in being an, uh, a pilot because I wanted to travel. And then over time, I realized I probably had more things to offer. So I switched over to sociology and communication. And so that's where, um, and counseling. So I, I should say that I always, I started doing peer counseling when I was in sixth grade. And so I became sort of enamored with the idea of helping people and supporting people, right? So counseling is something that I also did throughout my college career and even into my adult career. And so ultimately when I graduated from college, I took off, I took off for six months. I went to Europe to travel by myself. And I'd come back with the, I, my initial plan was to come back. I'd taken the LSAT. So I was thinking about going to law school. I'd taken the LSAT and I was gonna come back and apply to law school. But by the time I had gotten back, I think my values had shifted, right? I was, I found Scandinavia in particular very interesting in terms of how they as a society took care of people. Right. They had raised crosswalk bumps. They had curb cuts. They had auditory crosswalk, um, you know, signals. They had door handles instead of knobs. They had made all these adjustments to facilitate the interaction and participation of disabled people. But it was also clear to me that they were interested in creating a society in which more people were included and involved. And so when I came back, uh, I had. I was pretty clear that I didn't want to go to law school. And so I started teaching. I got a job teaching up in Nueva school. 
Um, I was also doing stand-up comedy at the time, but that doesn't have very much to do with my, my present career. But I started teaching and I enjoyed teaching. And so I became an educator, but I was always interested in the issues of equity, even as a classroom teacher. So over time, I, I, I'm what they call an autodidact. If I'm interested in something, I just go study it. And so um, through a series of different things, I just discovered the work of Claude Steele. I had already started doing some equity work, but Claude Steele's work around stereotype threat was very provocative. It, it reminded me in a very visceral sense of the kinds of experiences that I've been having. And so I was intrigued through a series of different things. I ended up at Stanford University. I think I'd been introduced to Jennifer Eberhardt because of some police reform work I was doing with Michelle Alexander and Van Jones and some others. And I got invited to do some work with Jennifer Eberhardt and her husband, Rick Banks, who's also down at Stanford doing some stuff around law enforcement. And through that work, I got invited to the center, uh, the Center for Comparative Studies of Race and Ethnicity, where I started to do some research work with the late Dorothy Steele, Hazel Marcus and Claude Steele. And that really shifted my focus on the DEI work, which I'd already started, to really thinking about interrupting systems and structures and intervening in education in particular as a site of change because our education system is actually predicated on the, I, the, the idea that intellect is fixed and it's ascribed along lines of race, class, and gender. It's actually one of the systems most directly impacted by eugenics because many of the earlier folks like Lewis Terman, Edward P. Cover, uh, Elwood P. Coverley, both of who over at Stanford were, were eugenicists, as was the president of Stanford, David Sarr Jordan. So education is a system that imposes value on people uh, and it visits those values on society. And so if, you, if we want a system to actually cultivate and create opportunities for all students, we have to deal with the eugenic legacies that may give us a system that doesn't do what we need it to do, right? because it's, it's designed as a sorting mechanism rather than a, a pump to move all students up as equitably as possible. It, it, it's rooted in some problematic assumptions about who's capable of learning and who's not. Gender, race, and class figure significantly within those ideas. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about what you do today as a, as a DEI consultant? I do a number of things, to be honest with you, Charlie. It depends on the institution that I'm working with. I think ultimately the way in which I approach the work is actually different than a lot of people do it. I'm interested in intellectual transformation so that people can actually understand racialization and identification. That is the imposition of meaning and value onto groups of people. And after people are able to to understand that, and that takes a while because the ways that the, this, the reductive view that we see, like the biology is destiny view, that's simple, but it's not useful. And so it's sometimes it takes time to move people that have more complex understanding because they're unlearning as adults. The opportunity in education is to invite students into a much more critical understanding earlier so that they don't have to spend their time revising, but that they can actually understand not only the way that these ideas affect us as a human community, but also how they shape our relationship to nature because the same sets of hierarchical values are also imposed on nature because many of the eugenicists were our early environmentalists. So there's lots of crossovers and these ideas are embedded in a lot of systems and structures. And if we don't see the world as connected, then we don't approach it as connected. 
And when we approach it as being disconnected, we break the room. Mm-hmm. Right. So what does that transformation look like? You know, how does it really change the minds of the students you work with? It's an intellectual upgrade, right? You see the world for what it is rather than you've been told that what it is. What it also does is it helps us see the value that each and everybody else brings to the table rather than assuming that there's some innate hierarchy and that we don't have to listen to people who haven't achieved what we have or that we should be deferential to people who have achieved more than we have. And I think that both of those sort of stances are problematic, right? Something can be learned from everybody because we all walk through the world differently and we understand and comprehend different things. So to assume that some people and particularly categorically are not worth listening to is nonsense, right? Or the fact that we should always listen to some people because they hold higher position over us. I I think that that's problematic as well. So how do you get there? Like, how do you, how do you really make, do you make those improvements? I, th- I think that's a great question and it's a difficult one to answer because it's a systems issue. So if you're working with, let's say, a school or an institution, and then you have to stay in a sustained conversation long enough for people to begin to make that cognitive shift away from, again, that essentialist worldview into something where you begin to understand that inequity is a function of policies and practices that allocate or deny opportunities. And what happens over time, particularly when it's done well, is that that process of seeing more clearly continues and it has sort of a cascading effect. The challenge is when you're dealing with systems, whether you're talking about schools or businesses, people come and go with changes in leadership. You have changes in motivation, direction, and vision. And sometimes work can be easily usurped. Having said that, when you can get people moving in the right direction, great things happen for kids and great things happen for educators. And I I hesitate to use the word best and brightest because I actually don't believe that in a hierarchical sense. But what I do think is when the systems are set up the way that they are, you have some people who are at a, a distinct advantage and many people who would bring a lot to the table never get to the starting line. I'll give you an example. It's actually a baseball example. I was um, watching my godson's older brother, Joseph. He pitches for Cal. So I was over at Sunken Diamond last weekend. I guess it was Saturday. And there was a scout, a baseball scout sitting behind me. And he was talking to a parent and he was lamenting how much money it costs to play travel ball these days. And then he basically said that the system of baseball has been broken because most of the talented kids don't have the kind of resources, the 40 grand a year, whatever it is to play travel ball because their families can't travel. They can't do come out with all the extra money. So what it does, he says, by the time you're about 14 or 15, you have a very narrow pool of players and they're not your best players, but they're the players who are most well-resourced. And what I would argue is that our public schools systems do that. And there are lots of other systems that do that. And they do that at a tremendous cost, not just to those individuals, but to the society that would benefit from having those ideas, those insights and inspirations at the table. And through a lot of this work you've done uh, to try to help things like that, can you tell us about some breakthroughs in your work uh, that you're really proud of and, and maybe some moments that have been really frustrating for you? So, so one of the things I'm actually super proud of, and it, it, it is about a relational thing. So there was a recent hire at Castilea a young woman by the name of Hannah Nguyen, who will join the history department and be doing some other things. 
I first met Hannah when she was probably a freshman at Notre Dame High School, and she was part of a student leadership group that I ran with Aaron De Silva, who's a teacher down there, and Trevor Gardner, who's a teacher at uh, Arise High School in Oakland. All three of us as educators have been in conversation with each other quite a bit over the years. I've worked with Trevor for over 20 years. And what we discovered is that the kind of intellectual foment that came from us hanging out with each other and with another small group of educators was so beneficial to us, we wanted to create something similar for young people. So at one point we had students from seven different schools coming together four or five times a year, not only to learn about these ideas, but to, to, but to translate their learning into action projects. So what's exciting to me is seeing some of these young, these former students who are now young adults sort of showing up in places with a very mature and critical understanding of the world in ways that will help move the needle in, in the right direction. So for me, success comes from seeing young folks begin to operate in the world in a way that is critical and informed. But it may also look like in systems, for instance, doing deeper work at schools, working with the school enough to where it translates the ways in which teachers engage with students, not only their pedagogical practices, but with their content in ways that invite students into the conversations and make them more relevant and more meaningful. And when that happens, a lot of behavioral things fall off the, you know, the behavioral issues go away. And many of the students who are oftentimes recalcitrant or unwilling, oftentimes step up and become some of the most engaged. So, so, so those are some successes. I think, you know, looking at um, other ways in which these ideas have played out, I've done a lot of work around environmental justice. And I think, again, we can look at environmentalism and particularly environmental racism through the same lens. Some communities are seen as disposable and therefore they're subject to a disproportionate burden of society's waste and uh, harms. You know, oftentimes freeways run through those communities are exposed to toxics from, you know, pollutants and power plants, you know, wastewater um, plants. But one of the organizations that I've worked with for over 20 years, Literacy for Environmental Justice, one of the things we did is in the, in the Bayview neighborhood, there was a, a, a power plant. It was actually the oldest PG&E power plant in the state. And it was actually the dirtiest. And in the Bayview, asthma rates are four times higher than any place else in San Francisco. So one of the things that we wanted to do was to get the power plant decommissioned and taken down. So Ledge worked with lots of other um, grassroots organizations to get the power plant shut down and decommissioned. But what was super exciting is in the shadow, literally about 200 yards away, we built what at one point was the greenest building in San Francisco. It's called the Eco Center at Heron's Head Point. It's an off-grid learning center. It's LEED Platinum certified. It's a really amazing building. And we built it in the middle of an urban area, historically black and brown community where people didn't think that things like that should exist. And what they did think is that people should be subject to the toxins and poisons of society. Well, we changed that narrative and more exciting, well, as of equal excitement as the placement of the building, we've engaged the community in a lot of restoration work and restored the biological integrity of the environment at Heron's Head Park. And then it's probably been about 12 years ago now, but one of the things, one of the ways we knew we were successful is that the California clapper rail, an endangered bird species, began breeding back at Heron's Head Park after a 50-year hiatus. 
And, and so what happens is when you actually understand how and why the systems get broken, you can actually do reverse designs and you can recreate integrity. And when you do that, systems respond, whether those are human systems or whether those are natural systems, they respond, right? Um, and so that's the value of doing this work is when you're able to do the deeper intellectual legwork that's required to engage with this history, we actually begin to see the world in the way that it actually is. But it also gives us the possibility to imagine the world in the way that it could be. So my final question for you today is, what is your vision for the world in 20 plus years? Well, I, I hope that we're still here. You know, I, I hope that we're, we're still here. I mean, I think climate change is a very real threat. It's a threat, not just to human beings, but it's a threat to the planet. What I do know is the planet could shrug us off and it'll be okay, right? But for me, what I'm, I'm actually curious about is if we can use climate change as a way to enter a, a deeper relational conversation as a global community in terms of what we might be able to accomplish together, rather than what we might achieve by beating each other down. And so part of the goal for me of doing this work, particularly the DEI work, particularly in a sense that it's rooted in an interrogation of history, is to re-engage and re-spark our civic imagination, our democratic imagination about who and what we might be as a country by beginning to, um, to dream again. So, so, th so that's my view of the world. But if I think about what I would like to see happen from the work that I'm investing in now, that if that was one of the outcomes, I would, I would be very satisfied by that. Milton, thank you so, so much for being here today. I learned so much from this interview. Well, I appreciate it, Charlie. And, and I know you said, you know, tell it to me so I can understand like a 10 year old, but I know you're on top of this. And I, and I do know that you are understanding 